As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, Drancher, as we begin another week of the VanCast here, we are fully removed from the shackles of the Stanley Cup playoffs and can get back to talking about the Vancouver Canucks in full force. We are just three days out from the draft on Thursday and just so much intrigue around this team right now. Well, there should be. And, you know, they're well positioned now. I mean, you think about the work to get to this point, right? The the deal that they've now struck with Jack Rathbone being a small example. The the successful pursuit of Andre Kuzmenko. Bruce Boudreaux back in the fold, albeit with a coaching staff that I think should be side-eyed in terms of whether it's this coaching staff he might have assembled in himself in an ideal world, right? And then the Besser compromise and the certainty that having Besser locked up now, right? That's There's no lingering doubt about who this team's top line right winger is going into this season, right? I mean, instead of it being Besser and Miller and Horvat and Garland, you know, it feels like now this week is clarified from a Canucks perspective. They've taken care of a lot of the business that they had to take care of. And now we can settle in and enjoy a week that really in classic Vancouver fashion, is going to be a wall-to-wall JT Miller gab fest and, and, you know, in the lead-up to draft day. Yeah, so so we'll dive into JT in a moment, but first let's wrap up just kind of how things went down with Besser. I know you wrote about it in The Athletic this week, and, and certainly a tidy bit of business because we felt this was what made sense. Another bridge deal, get the cap a hit down. Um, you know, we knew it wasn't going to get as low as 6.5, but for them to get it in for three years at 6.65, I think is a pretty good number, and it gives them a little more flexibility because I know there was a lot of panic around dealing with that cap hit, and, and certainly we are expecting a bit of a bounce back as far as Besser's concerned. 
because um, it was a difficult year. And the more you talk to him, you just get a sense of just how difficult it was. Absolutely. I, I just want to be clear. I, I don't consider this a bridge deal just because for me, a bridge deal has to be a second contract. Once you're in your third contract, uh, it's really not a bridge. Uh, I guess it can be a bridge extension if it expires it when the him, players are. It will take him to UFA status. Totally. But a bridge deal usually yeah. lands before that, right? A bridge deal is usually sure. a three-year deal that brings you to your last arbitration eligible season, sometimes two remaining arbitration eligible seasons, as was the case for Besser. But yeah. But how much concern was there, right? I mean, it, it seemed like the fact the club could take him to arbitration was a real concern hanging over all of this, as opposed to simply the QO, which was still another week out. Well, and, you know, I, I got the sense of frustration from both sides on Thursday morning and reported as such and reported that the arbitration route was a very serious matter of internal discussion for the Canucks. And, you know, on, uh, I mean, when a negotiation gets to that point where both sides are willing to tell you that there's a there's an element of frustration settling in, that to me almost always means, especially when there's a pretty evident compromise, as there was in this case, that, hey, there could be progress on this. <laughs> and uh, it was getting quiet for a while, right? I mean, we were we were nervous about how quiet it was getting in the 72 hours leading up to the final announcement. For sure. For sure. And so, yeah, it was getting very quiet. Um, I mean, you know, impasse, stalled. Those were the words being thrown around, um, you know, by principles, right? So the frustration level reached a certain threshold. And yet when you're talking about driving compromise and working to deadlines, that can be healthy in reaching a resolution. And on Friday, as Patrick Alvin and Emily Castonguay set up shop, in the wee hours of the morning at Rogers Arena, Jim Rutherford keeping tabs over the phone, you know, the Canucks up their offer, right? They, they were willing, I think, to go to arbitration. Certainly, they were willing to tell Besser's camp they were willing to go to arbitration. And yet, they initiated, in some ways, the compromise by coming up pretty significantly on overall compensation and in return, ended up with the structure, like a straightforward structure and the exact term that they wanted all along as as the Athletics been reporting for a couple of months. Really well done. Uh, like a job very well done in a very complicated set of circumstances by Rutherford and company. What do you think the original number was at before before they got into the compromise? Um, well, a lot lower. I, I don't know exactly but I would think uh, I would think a fair bit lower, like as much as ten to fifteen percent lower. Hmm. Interesting. So, so potentially below six million, in and around that range. Wow. Um, with all of that, though, you know they pass another test, and this is one of the things that they haven't had a lot of major tests. But you know, we talk about what happened at the trade deadline last year. Certainly, eventually getting Boudreaux done on their terms. Yep. Right. The, without the extension. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, whether you believe Boudreaux, Although that might have been, you know, that's an interesting one to bring up because that might have been a more um, that might have been a more tricky test or a more tricky needle to thread than we perhaps realized on the outside. You know, in what regard? Well, we know, for example, that ownership was deeply involved in hiring Bruce. Right. And there's no way they were unhappy with the results. So to come to this conclusion when you're an executive team you know where where Boudreaux works out the final year of his deal and you haven't sort of committed the extended the, the money that an extension would have required but you bring the guy back 
feels like a actually now that I think about it, now that you framed it in those terms, which I sort of hadn't considered, there there is actually a fair bit of sleight of hand and compromise in a, in a pretty complex situation that likely took place to to reach the conclusion that the team did on the Boudreaux front. But ultimately, if you're Bruce Boudreaux, you want an extension in that circumstance. Correct. And they were able to thread the needle of not just what he wanted, but also what ownership wanted and come up with a conclusion that became a win-win situation. Um, You know, basically it was done on the organization's terms because whether ownership wanted it or or not, ultimately ownership also wants a level of flexibility that comes with being able to do what you want with your coach. And they now have that. Well, and things don't go the well they want midway through the season and negotiating with Besser with the with the arbitration deadline being sort of the decisive deadline that drove the compromise. That's also a deal on the organization's terms. So and and we talked about this before. You, You made the but you made the point earlier, like, you know, months ago. That that is a sur- is a situation the Canucks did not want to find themselves in because of the potential relationship damage with a person like Besser that may not just view it as all business, right? Like for them to go down the road of club elected arbitration in this particular case to essentially say you have not lived up to this deal and the potential pitfalls that come with that, the fact that they were willing to go there or at least convince, as you say, Besser and his camp that they were willing to go there. Right. And, you know, you you now potentially can get the best of Besser now. You know, the situation with his father um, has been weighing on him so heavily for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, so you've got him in a, in a mental state that will be a little bit different, a little bit stronger, a little less uncertainty around him. He clearly wants to be here, but you were able to hang that. We didn't think they were playing that card. You and I both talked about this on previous episodes. We did not think a month ago that there was any chance they were going to play that particular card and ultimately that's the card that got it done and this was one of two serious bits of business this team had to go through this offseason they got one of them done and now the other one is sitting there pending and that's jt miller and as we talk about miller uh, elliot friedman reported earlier that um it's just it he views this as being just way too difficult to get this done given what the player wants given what the player really has earned coming off a 99 point season and, you know, the Canucks, we talk about their ages, we talk about their need to, to carve out cap flexibility, we talk about the need to create asset value, all of it. And as much as, you know, I asked Patrick Alvin the questions at his press or at his Zoom availability following the Besser news, and he wasn't willing to concede at all. Players have gone through and played in the final year of their contract. We still have value as the season progresses. We still think he's our best player. We're not going to be bound by a time frame. All of this stuff, which is great to say, but how legitimate is it that they still believe that they can wait on this thing past the start of the draft? Because that's, in my opinion, the value of the player is the highest on the draft floor. I think the organization, first of all, I just want to say this. Doing things on your own terms, the way that this management group with the Boudreaux situation and now with Besser has managed to shape the field of play in their favor in both instances with various sort of potential complications abounding is what this should look like, right? And above all else, I give them credit for that because we haven't seen nearly enough of that in this market over the past decade. Uh, that is good stuff. In regards to a Miller timeline. Now, timeline is the wrong way to work on Think about it. 
there's no buy the draft timeline. There's no buy free agency time. It's not like that. It's just that I believe, and, and I don't believe this. I'm telling you this. The organization, regardless of what their public commentary on the matter is, recognizes that there is risk to hanging on to Miller unsigned beyond this silly season, right? There is almost no upside if you're going to trade the player to hanging on to him at this point, right? There's no way his value goes up. There's just no way. I mean, if he repeats his performance of this past season, right? If he completely beats all the impacts or potential impacts of regression, both to his shooting percentage and his individual point percentage and his on-ice shooting percentage, I mean, possible, even even discounting the on-ice portion entirely. If you go into next season with Miller unsigned, but still, you know, sort of on your roster, all you all you end up doing is the longer you go along, the more control he has over his own trade value. It's basically like a de facto no trade clause, right? Because there's one valuation where Miller is the best rental on the market. And then there's the other valuation, the one you want, which is higher, where another team trading for him looks at him as, you know, a potential core piece, right? There's so so you de facto provide him with a trade clause if you hang on to him. Plus, there's the injury risk factor that, you know, should loom really large. There's no upside at this point. And the organization, and you know that this is true because you know they've shown us enough now that we should assume that there's a baseline level of competence, right? What I'm talking about in terms of the organizational's uh, organizational posture or thinking on the matter, it's not pie in the sky. It's not like, well, they have this really weird way of thinking about it. It's evident. It's self-evident. You think they don't know that? You think they're like, oh, I mean, lots of players play the last year of their deal. We don't have to be aware of any unique circumstances regarding our best trade asset. You, you, come on. You really believe that? This group. Not at all. You know, like, so, you know, I, I think sometimes we do need to be skeptical enough to read between the lines at least a little bit. The club's not going to say that they have a deadline. That that harms their, at least not publicly, that harms their overall sort of um, leverage, I suppose, right? Uh, Do you see any scenario where JT Miller is on the opening day roster without a new contract? I would be stunned. I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not going to say no scenario. I'm not going to say I see no scenario, but do I think it's going to happen? I don't. I really don't. Nor should it. Nor should it. It would be malpractice. And I, I grant this organization at this point, having seen how they operate, I give them enough credit to know that they're going to do, at the very least, what's baseline obvious and in their self-interest. And to hold on to Miller without a contract beyond the next two weeks, I think, would be malpractice. I just think they're better than that. I, I don't see any reason why you'd think otherwise. You know, the idea that you'd hold on to the player or you owe it to the room, like, that's loser talk. And I just don't believe that that's how this organization conducts their business anymore. You can kind of go that way in season. You shouldn't. But we've seen teams that, you know, teams gone on a run, but you're out of that emotional phase of the season. You're in the offseason. You can be completely clear headed about yeah. this. You should be clear headed at any point. Yeah. Yeah. Like you you can't sit there and say we owe that to the room no. now. Well, and it's not like it, it would be one thing. I mean, here's the scenario that I could see where you'd hang on to Miller, right? Say somehow, some way, Kale McCarr demands a trade out of Colorado and the Canucks land him without giving off anything significant off of their roster. And now 
you're like, wow, this team might be a cup contender. They've got Demko. They've got Pedersen. They've got Kale freaking McCarr. They've got Quinn Hughes. Oh, my goodness. Keep Miller. You have a chance at a cup. In that scenario. Yeah, yeah in that okay. Scenario, that's, that's fantasy, no, though. That's I know, ridiculous. But you that's fantasy. Like, the only way it makes sense to keep Miller on your roster beyond this offseason is if you have a chance to win, and I don't see any way to get them to a point, get this roster to a point where you can realistically assess, you know, relative to the rest of the league, we've got a real shot. And if that's the truth, if that's the case, then I think the outcome here is pretty obvious. There needs to be a resolution one way or another in the next 10 days. And I believe the organization shares that view. And when Kevin Fiala signed his deal, or sorry, when Minnesota got what they got for Kevin Fiala, uh, people were talking about that as a potential comparable for Besser. For me, it was just seen as a starting point for Miller. If they got that for Fiala, what can the Canucks at this point where everybody is dispassionate, what can they reasonably get for JT Miller? Here's what I think they got to get. You ready? A 2023 first round pick. I'm going to keep banging this drum far on. That's what I want to see the Canucks get. I want them to get a first next year from a team that they're betting against. Like, I want to see them get a first next year from like Boston or Washington. That's what I want. Really? Yep. You think it's, you think a team like that would fall that far that that draft pick becomes massively valuable? I think it's very possible with late, late stage contenders. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying that would be the asset that I would be after above all else. Like Nashville, like Nashville's a Soros injury away from being terrible. You know, like th- those those are the teams that I want to pick at New York, the Rangers, who had just a as opposed to a, as opposed to a top 10 pick in this year's draft. 100 percent, 100 percent by a team that just feels like they underachieve. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of people about Connor Bedard. I've been watching a lot of Connor Bedard film. People will understand why in about 10 days. And Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's all that's I, I don't want to put too much pressure on the kid, but my goodness, like, yeah, that's the asset that I want to see this team go after. Yeah, they'd have to gut a lot deeper than that, though. Um, the Canucks would. Well, that's why I'm saying you don't have to if you just. Oh, sorry. If it's somebody else, that's what pick, I'm saying. What that's saying. why go get yeah. another pick, because we know you're not going to be bad enough. You've got that Demko. So go, yeah. go take a shot. Go, go find an additional lottery shit. There's no there's no percentage chance too low that that's not for me uh, the the absolute best return you could possibly get for whomever you can get it for uh, aside from the core four guys um, this offseason to me that's to me that's should be target one a one b one c like that's it that's the that's the target I want to see this team prioritize. Yeah, but they need to be able to get more than that for JT Miller from a team like that who thinks that they've still got another run at for this. Sure. And that's why they're bringing in JT Miller. Like, you need to be able to get significantly more than a first round pick for JT Miller, do you not? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm just saying the the number one thing that I think I I would be prioritizing were I the Canucks is that 2023 first from a from a team that I am comfortable betting against or that I yeah, want to bet plus against. A right, plus a right side D man. Plus plus a good defender who's a prospect and maybe another piece yeah wow well i I, you know i thought you were almost going to go full stop at the end of the draft pick i was going to offer you some athletic greens to get your energy up so uh, i love my athletic greens looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk a bit about the Canuck coaching staff because the Canucks have made some some rather significant moves. The Brad Shaw move to Philadelphia on a four-year deal was not surprising. I know that they said the right things. We expect them to be on our bench. But ultimately, when a guy gets a four-year deal like that, you can't prevent that when he only had a year left on his here on his deal here in Vancouver and the head coach ahead of you only has a one-year deal. Like It just doesn't make sense. So good for them for not standing in the way. He gets to join his good buddy Torts in Philly. Meanwhile, the Canucks who have still remaining, obviously Bruce Boudreaux, they've still got Jason King, they've still got Ian Clark. They have added Mike Yo, and his name had been mentioned previously. He's got eight years as an NHL head coach. He'd been in Minnesota previously. He'd been a part of the Pittsburgh organization with their American League affiliate. Uh, they've also got um, Trent Cull has been elevated from Abbotsford to coach with the big club. Presumably, he's going to run the defense and he's going to run the, the penalty kill, we assume. And then you've also got Jeremy Colleton, who spent three years as the head coach in Chicago, who's now going to be the head coach in uh, Abbotsford. And that's a pretty interesting move on a few levels. So first of all, as I see it, and I know you've got a lot of opinions on this, but as I see it, in a situation where you've got a coach that's only on a one-year deal, you've got two potential replacement coaches with head coaching experience. Not to say it's going to go poorly, uh, because I do believe in Bruce Boudreaux, and I think with everything around him, I think he's in a great position to succeed. As we look at Jeremy Colleton, it's always been a really important thing when Alvin and Rutherford were in Pittsburgh that their American League team had to be exceptional. Right. It, it couldn't just be middling. And they took a step last year when they moved the team to Abbotsford so they could keep a closer eye on it. But they want to make sure that that team is equipped to compete at the American level and produce players immediately for the National Hockey League level as needed. So to have a guy that's got three years of NHL head coaching that's still young enough to relate to these guys. I think is important. How old do I feel? I covered Jeremy Colleton when he played for Canada's World Junior Team. Um, also. I understand that uh, I read. I read that he also spent time um, uh, in. Uh, it was in the Swedish league or in the Finnish league on the same organization that Alvin yeah, Swedish, played Swedish in, league, the Alsvenk in the Swedish yeah. league. So, so basically, I know they're they're far removed from one another in terms of the ages when Alvin played there, but just in terms of Alvin's got to have some connections to that organization to really get a sense of how Jeremy Colton coached there, coupled with the fact that he took over just a horrible situation in Chicago and, you know, did some decent things given the circumstances he was faced with. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's a good hire for Vancouver there. And then when you look at Mike Yo, a guy that's got a long track record in Pittsburgh with, uh, uh, with Patrick Alvin. Yep. So as much as Bruce Boudreaux says this was – there, much as Patrick Alvin says that he was at the top of Boudreaux's list, you've got to look at that a little bit skeptical, don't you? Yeah, I think you have to take it with a, a little bit of a grain of salt. I'm sure that Boudreaux was uh, involved in the process. 
Um, but you know, if if I, I, it, it's hard to imagine that Mike Yo wasn't also of interest to Patrick Alvin, who who worked closely with him. And here's the other thing about the Colton hire, really quickly. Here's a list of some of the coaches that have gone through Wilkes Bear Scranton. Uh, you know, since uh, since 2003, anyway, like since Alvin joined the Penguins organization, you'd have Michelle Terrian, right? Joe Mullen got one season. Todd Richards went on to be an NHL head coach in Columbus. Dan Bilesma, we all know who he is. Todd Reardon, right? Um, John Hines, Mike Sullivan. Like, this is a role that in the Penguins organization has been reserved for absolute top coaching prospects. And when you think about sort of the overall mentorship approach, the idea of getting the most out of the people in the organization, um, which is evident at just in just about every move the club has made, you know, I, I think hiring a guy like Colton, who's just 37, who impressed Alvin in during his time in the Alsvanken with the with the work he did developing some guys, you know, who weren't really like big time on the NHL radar, but ended up playing NHL games. I'm talking about guys like Matthias Brome and uh, Pierre Engvall in Toronto. Um, you know, this is a really crucial role for the club to have filled. And Colleton in particular seems to have, over the past couple of months, really struck up a bit of an affinity with Alvin personally. Uh, as the Canucks talk to just about everybody, um, you know, Boudreaux and Alvin working hand in hand on fleshing out this coaching staff. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's an extent to which I do wonder would Boudreaux have, if Boudreaux had handpicked his own staff, what would it look like? Would it look like this? But I also think, I, you know, I'm, I'm relatively confident that Boudreaux was at least deeply involved. And I, I do think there's a fair bit of, you know, intriguing coaching talent being brought in the organization with with really the call it and hire sort of looming largest for me in terms of telling us a fair bit about Vancouver's overall approach to management, staffing, internal mentorship, getting the most out of their people. How do we think they're going to be deployed? We talked about Cull being um, yeah, and let's let's talk about Trent Cull a little bit in terms of where the right fit is for him. You know, like we've talked before many times about the lack of development happening in Abbotsford previous to that in Utica. And, you know, when the organization, you know, Ryan Johnson, we had him on with us and he wound up having to talk about, you know, Jonah Gadjevich and, and, you know, this type of player that really hasn't made a dent at the national hockey league level, certainly didn't make a dent in this organization. You know, Jack Rathbone did some good things last year, but part of it, it's not, I'm not blaming Trent Cole. Certainly there's, they've been bereft of talent at that level. They've fast-tracked first-round draft picks to the NHL level. So you've never got a chance to see those players ripen at the American Hockey League level. For me, I kind of started to side-eye a little bit back when the whole Jonathan Dolan thing happened, you know, and Trent Cole was at the center of that. And this was a promising young player, or at least believed to be at that time. And it was, you know, the last time the Canucks had a win at the deadline, right? When they moved Hanson and Burroughs, and that was one of the assets they were able to acquire. And next thing you know, he's out of the organization. So, you, you know, they, is this the, the right move for him? Because Ryan Johnson says great things about Trent Cole. They had some good moments last year before eventually fading and a surprise early exit. Uh, we thought they were going to go on a bit more of a run. But, you know, certainly they did some good things late in the season to kind of get to that point. 
So how do we view Trent Cole? And some guys just aren't necessarily best suited to be development coaches and might be better served at the NHL level. And they're talking about him running the defense, which uh, which Brad Shaw did, and also running the penalty kill. I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty interested to see how Cole succeeds because, you know, he has taken a lot of the blame in this market for what the club has accomplished in terms of the player development side at the American league level. But, you know, it's not like anyone who worked for this organization was sort of covered in glory, you know, over the past few seasons. Right. I mean, it's tough for me to understand, I suppose how much credit or blame Cole should get when this team ran at a draft pick deficit during an era in which they were rebuilding, fast-tracked their prospects, and really, you know, made the most hay out of college guys, um, you know, who that they, whose development they then accelerated. I mean, you think about guys like Troy Stetcher, right? He played two games in, in Abbotsford, or Utica, excuse me. Uh, Adam Gaudet, we all know that story. Both Cull uh, and Ryan Johnson have made sure to tell it prominently in public of late. You think about guys like Gadjevich, you think about guys like Colind. It's not like either of them have, you know, freed from the yoke of the meddling Trent Cull, have gone on to be the superstars that they were held back from being in Vancouver's farm system. Like even Jonathan Dolan, he's what? Sort of a perimeter oriented middle six forward at the NHL level, right? Like probably best suited to being a, you know, passenger on a on a f- offensive line on on you know a team that doesn't win like okay who cares like i don't know what i I mean it's not i don't know that there's this big track record of guys who amounted to more outside of the canucks organization you know like i just don't know how much culpability (laughs) how much culpability very good call should be credited with having in terms of the development side now i'm not uh, that's not to necessarily defend the guy i don't know him at all to be honest with you and i haven't watched enough games that he's coached to have a really good sense for his feel or or what have you but you know he certainly has a very strong supporter internally in ryan johnson and you know we'll we'll see i mean some people are better suited to being assistants right i mean this could work um or or not i i just don't know that the way that call has been tagged as responsible primarily for the club's poor development track record in Utica is fair considering the overall, you know, lack of direction that the organization has evinced at just about every level uh, and, and the scant resources that the club used to invest into their American league team back before it moved to the Fraser Valley. So then why the change? Is it just to get Colleton in and to give him that role in that organization to have somebody that Rutherford and Alvin are a little more comfortable with that have a little more track record with? I mean, surely they could have hired Colleton to be an assistant with the big club if they wanted. Well, and I think they they considered it. So I I don't know exactly what the dynamics are that led them to structure Colleton at the AHL level and promote call. Um, It might have been, you know, a review process where they were like, we think this guy's done a good job, but we also want a different voice down in Abbotsford, down in running our American League team. Maybe it was the only way to land Colton, and they valued Colton to that extent. I don't actually have that answer. 
to be totally honest with you. But I'm curious to see how the bench is going to look. Like, are they going to go forward? Do they put one up top? If Jason King is a young coach, goes up top, how does he run the power play effectively yeah. from there? I couldn't get the I couldn't um, get the answer. Yo's- I couldn't get that answer out of um, out of the Canucks. I think they want to meet as a coaching staff in Montreal this week and sort of sort it out between themselves. And I, I suspect we'll know by end of week. Yeah, because I mean, if Mike Yo is your senior assistant, you're not going to put him up top. No, so, one would want. I mean, I don't, and I don't think you'd put any coach who's running a unit up top. Like if if they don't go four guys on the bench, I would assume that Mike Yo's the eye in the sky. Interesting. Uh, that would be my assumption. Uh, I would, I would assume that they'll put Jason King up top and try to see if they can find a way to run the power play from there. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's, I, mean, I guess he's it's not possible, running the forwards. But like, think about who who tends to diagram. A late game set play, like it's always your power yeah. play coach. So I, it's yeah, you're right. It's just hard. I I find that hard to imagine. I I bet they go four bodies on the bench. Hmm. Not a lot of teams are doing that though. Yeah, but it's increasingly frequent, and the Canucks did it last year. I mean, it's not unheard of. And Ian Clark is up top, but he's kind of up top with an eye on different things, yep. as opposed to tactics and strategy. You know, I, mean, I suppose. Yep. I su- yeah, I suppose you could do it from up there, but that kind of takes away from. Uh, kind of where his head is at during yep. the game for the most part. But um, but anyway, some meaningful changes. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about threading the needle, and it, this is something that uh, I'm sure Boudreaux is comfortable with, but um, certainly something that Rutherford and Alvin probably had more input on. And not to say that this was done with Bruce kicking and screaming. I'm not suggesting that. But I would imagine that that, that they took – you know, that they took the names to him and said, look, these are the guys we want you to consider. And and ultimately, everybody's a little bit happy by where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I and I do think there's an organizational sensitivity about presenting it that way, right? And I think that's why the, the hymn book was um, stuck to, right? Note by note, by all parties. Uh, Yo was, was Bruce Boudreaux's first choice. Um, so, you know, clearly, clearly some residue from how things played out, I think, in, in April and May. I think that's evident, but I don't necessarily think that's problematic or unhealthy or, or even a story that I want to pick at too much. I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily, uh, you know, going to inhibit this organization succeeding next season by any means. Let's take a quick break and come back for one more segment where we will get into who the Canucks might be looking at selecting come Thursday. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. So, Drancer, Vancouver sits 15th right now in the draft. And, you know, as we look at a lot of, I don't want to say confusion, but there is a certain level of uncertainty 
at the top of the draft just because of the Russian factor, right? And and I know that that does have some team concerned about, uh, you know, who's going to be available right out of the gate. Yep. So when you look at uh, Bob McKenzie's draft rankings, as I've uh, pulled them up right here, and you're looking in that range, uh, Danila Yurov uh, at 14, Connor Gecki at 13, you've got Frank Nazar at 15, Brad Lambert 16, uh, Jeremy Snugarud at 17, Yuri Kulich at 18, those types of names. Um, who jumps out at you in terms of who the Canucks will take? And obviously, it depends if somebody drops or not. Uh, Liam Ogren is somebody that uh, Kuz just wrote about uh, as a possibility. Bob's got him ranked to 21st. You're talking about somebody, you know, when, when I talk about needs for this organization, the needs they have at the big club are reflective throughout the organization, right? Like they need help on the right side of their D all the way through. Yep. They need help with a right-handed center all the way through. So given the fact that you're in the middle and there's a lot of gray area from 10 to 20 or 10 and 10 to 30, really, you've got some flexibility to not just take the best player available unless somebody really drops surprisingly, but to draft on need. So which way do you see them going and who are the names to keep an eye on? Well, so throughout this process, one guy whose name is rung out in connection with the Canucks throughout is almost sure to be unavailable by the time they select. And that's Jonathan Leckermacki, the Swedish sniper widely believed to be going in the top 10, 8, 9, 10 in that range. So that's sort of one of the names that's been most consistently linked to the Canucks throughout this process. But I, I don't see them landing him without a trade up uh, early in the process. I heard the name Nathan Gosher a fair bit in connection with the Canucks. Um, some rumblings now that he's a late riser and might not be available. But I also am not sure that the club like I'm not sure that he's remained high uh, in the club's estimation as they've gone through the process. The the Russian defenseman, uh, Minchukov, is another guy widely expected to be gone by the time the Canucks pick. Uh, there's been some industry smoke around him and the Canucks as well. Finally, you get to the two Swedes, and it's Liam Ogren, I believe, and Noah Ostland are, are two guys that I know my colleague at The Athletic, uh, Corey Pronman, had the Canucks taking Ostland uh, at 15 in his latest mock draft. Um, so, you know, uh, those have been sort of the two names that I've heard associated with the Canucks most frequently over the course of the past, let's say three weeks, two weeks, like as we've gotten closer, those guys were originally or widely mocked in the twenties. But I do think we've reached a point where one or both might be off the board by the time the Canucks pick, like those guys both have, the buzz of draft risers about them at the moment. So we'll see exactly how the board shapes up. As you said, like after the top five, right? Like after right, um, you know, Cooley, um, I can't, I don't know why, but the, the Slovakian kid's name is escaping me. Slavkovsky, uh, Juracic and Nemec, like after those five guys, um, you know, and maybe, maybe Cutter Gauthier, jumps into that party uh, and, and becomes a top five pick himself. Like after those five or six, it, it feels like the industry is, you know, leaning on some very, very divergent opinions about the rest of the first round, which makes this a very unpredictable draft to handicap as we go along. The other thing you've talked about is how much sense it would make for the Canucks to find a way to trade down in this draft 
for additional assets to still find a, a first round to still potentially pick in the first round, but to not necessarily sit there at 15, given the fact that there is a lot of variance available uh, l- later in the first I'm round. I'm cooler on that as a possibility than I was, I'd say, a month ago, partly because the names I'm hearing associated with the Canucks, I'm also hearing associated with a ton of teams picking ahead of them, right? You know, there's a real chance now that a player like Ostland is gone by the time the Canucks pick. There's a real chance that Liam Ogren is gone by the time the Canucks pick. And in a world where the guys that I was sort of thinking, hey, maybe the Canucks would trade down because they could still get one of those guys or a Gaucher, uh, Gaucher or what have you. Uh, in a world where those guys are rising up the draft order, will the risk you take trading back becomes significantly greater. And so, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's not going to happen by any means, but I'm cooling on that as a possibility, as something I might expect on draft day. Um, What are you hearing at the top of the draft for Montreal? Slavkovsky or Wright? My gut is it's going to be Wright. And I think Wright is the right call, by the way. I've actually been meaning to find a place to talk about this, so I'm glad that I have. There is a thing that happens when you are a top, top prospect who is not necessarily going to have the offensive dynamism that people want from the number one overall pick. And and here's here's what occurs. You get overscouted, right? You get overscouted and picked apart for what you can't do as opposed to appreciated for all of the good things you do do. And <laughs> do do. And happens in every draft, every sport. Happens every draft like every for sport. the guys that yes. are- the only, the only time you don't see it, truthfully, is in the NBA draft because they're all so young. Yeah. You don't have that opportunity. Like Usually, it's somebody that's burst onto the scene and that gets taken that high. We're not talking about him as much the year before. Yeah. But in the other but it sports... Happened, and it happened in the NBA draft this year with Jabari Parker, who couldn't dribble. And everyone's like, oh, well, he can't dribble. And it's like, yeah, he's a six foot ten dead-eye shooter who tries hard on defense. Like I'm pretty sure he's okay. Uh, anyway. Yeah, and certainly happens a lot in the NBA, or sorry, in the NFL. Yeah. Well, and in the NHL, some recent examples, Sean Couturier, you remember Sean Couturier dropping down? Well, Sean Couturier is one of the best two-way centers in the game. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. here's another guy it happened to, Jacob Chikorin. Remember Jacob Chikorin was supposed to be a top three pick, and then he ends up going in the teens. Well, guess what? He's like a 20-goal guy who's six foot four and hits like a truck, a bona fide top pair defenseman. So, you know, for me, Wright is of that mold. Like, this is going to be a highly impactful, physically assertive, um, two-way centerman. Almost impossible to find those guys. And I think if he goes any lower than first, you know, I I still think there's a real shot that he's the best player in the draft. He should be the pick for Montreal, in my opinion. And Slavkovsky, I've heard one report that he was actually going to be there, which surprised me. Very uh, cool. You know, given what's going on. But uh, so we'll see if that happens. But... You know, when you see a guy that's 6'4", 230 pounds, it's it's tough to look away if you think he's got the hands and speed to match. So we'll see where that goes. But as far as the Canucks are concerned, uh, sitting at 15, it'd be, it'd be weird to actually go through a draft and have them actually pick. Yeah, well, and they need to. I mean, they need to pick. And here's the other thing. Like, I think it has to be a massive priority. I think it's absolutely essential that the club add draft capital. It doesn't have to be this year, but this year and next, I want to see the club run... Uh, draft pick surplus at least at least 15 selections over the next two years which isn't easy because what i i know they have an extra pick next year correct but they yeah so they have an extra fourth rounder next year from the mott trade 
although they're down a seventh rounder. So um, so they have seven next year and they have six this year. I want to see them add two picks. I want to see them run a draft pick surplus the next two years. I think it's absolutely crucial that they do that considering the state, uh, the state of disrepair, let's be honest, that their prospect pipeline is in at the moment. And for us, I'm just hoping we have somebody to talk about one way or the other coming up on Thursday, and we will be back with you. Next episode of the VanCast is going to be Thursday. And we're going to do a live, right? Uh, Let's do it live! live. We're doing it live after the first (laughs) round of the draft. We're going to get started sometime between 8.30 and 9 o'clock Pacific time, so please make sure you tune in, and uh, we thank you for listening. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. If you're looking for other pod options, Ian Mendez and Arpon Basu welcome Sportsnet Sam Costantino ahead of the draft in Montreal on Tuesday on the Athletic Hockey Show. And right now, you can get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash thefancast. I've been making the most out of my subscription transfer because I have been all over all this college football stuff. I am gutted at what happened with UCLA and USC. Uh, so I've been consuming Bruce Feldman and all the good writers about all of that. It sucks. But hey, we don't have to talk about that. We can talk hockey. We will be back on Thursday. Sounds good, bud. Be well. Be well.